All right, please be seated. Well, this afternoon we're continuing our sermon series in Revelation, and uh, I'm really, really delighting in this book. Sometimes I'm kind of agonizing over it when I'm preparing sermons, but um, as I spend time in it, it's always, um, it's, it's never a disappointment. <laughs> um, God has a lot for us in His Word, and as I said last week, some things are acknowledged to be harder to understand than others. Um, Peter said that, and as I mentioned to you, he said that about Paul's writings, and I think if Revelation had been written when he wrote his letter, he would have said about Revelation as well. But um, God has given us so much in His Word that we can look at. And so this afternoon, I'm not going to have such a long introduction as I've been having. I was kind of trying to some people were struggling with what I've been preaching about in, in Revelation. I was trying to really get us all up to speed with that. But we're going to be more brief in the introduction today. But just in case you have not been with us in this series, I do want to at least point out what we have in Revelation. And it is called the Revelation of Jesus Christ. It's Christ revealed to us. And how is he revealed? And what situation is he revealed? A different situation than what he had when he was here. We have the four Gospels that tell us what Christ did when he was here and revealed to us what he did as he ministered among us and what the implications of that are, how he died on the cross for our sins, rose again. All of those things that are foundational to our faith. That's why we have four Gospels that lay out those things to really bring them home. But Revelation has a different uh, revelation of Christ, and that is Christ up there, Christ in glory. And we get to see what's going on in the place where we can't see. And uh, it's shown to us by the visions that were given to John. And we see that there is a throne there and the Father on the throne reigning over all. You know, he doesn't really have a, he doesn't have a body. He doesn't have a, a material throne like that. But it's a vision of what is there. And we, and we see Jesus that's there at his right hand and that he is the lamb that was slain and that he was the one that was able to open the scroll that God's plan could then issue forth because of his merit and his work, the plan that would bring about his righteous kingdom. The one I talked about this morning that was so dear to him, the prospect of that kingdom was so dear to him, going to his father's house, that he endured the cross, despising the shame. He was able to go with joy in the, in the prospect of bringing his people into that glorious kingdom. And so what we have in Revelation is him actually carrying that out. He's carrying out the decree. It's not what you would think. You know, you would think that it would just be that there would be this, uh, this sweet summoning and all these people coming sweetly in. But instead, we've seen that it goes out with various kinds of judgment and things. The gospel goes out with uh, economic troubles and division. Jesus said, I didn't come to bring peace but a sword. And, you know, that, that's what is happening now is he's, as the gospel is going out, it's in the midst of trouble and conflict. And there's death and there's even death of his own people. There's martyrs and things like that. And what it helps us with so much to have that is we look at Revelation and we see that this is God's plan. You know, he's the one that's sending out these horses and and things that, that bring all this to us. So, so it's very, very helpful for us and to have this vision. It's filled with symbols of the establishment of his kingdom. You know, it's, it shows the, uh, how, all the, how the, all the opposition against him and his kingdom will be put down. 
And as we're, we're told very plainly all through the Bible, Old Testament and New, that he will reign until all of his enemies are put under his feet, that the kingdom will come and the kingdom will flourish and his enemies will be cast out. So, I said it wouldn't be too long. We need to get on. Okay, for our scripture reading, we're going to go right on into that Revelation chapter 8. And uh, so we're going to read the first six verses. I thought about doing the whole chapter, but decided against it. So Revelation 8, verses 1 through 6. This is the word of God. When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. Then another angel, having a golden censer, came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar, which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints ascended before God from the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and threw it to the earth. And there were noises, thunderings, lightnings, and an earthquake. So the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound. There we end the reading of God's holy and inspired word. May God add his blessing to this reading of his word. Thanks be to God for his word. So look at how this chapter opens. Our Lord Jesus opens the seventh seal. And when he does, heaven drops to silence. Verse 1, when he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. This, this is striking. I mean, remember that he was given the scroll that he who was sacrificed on the cross for his people's sins could open. Only he could open it. The one that was the lamb that was slain. No one else could, had, was worthy to open it to send this plan forward. The scroll contained God's plan to establish his righteous kingdom for sinners saved out of the, this rebellious world. God's plan or decree could not proceed until Christ had been crucified, had been buried, had risen again, and ascended up to heaven. John saw in his vision that this had happened and that he began to open the scroll by removing the seven seals with which it was bound. John got to see the ascension from both sides, as it were. He uh, was standing on earth when Jesus ascended into the clouds. And then years later, he saw a historical revision of that from heaven's side, as uh, Daniel had seen when the lamb was there that had been slain and was given authority over everything with the scroll put into his hand. So as the seals were removed, as we have seen, uh, heaven sent forth four horses that represented the gospel going forth with all kinds of calamity, including division, economic inflation, and the loss of life. We saw that it wasn't as serious as it's going to be later on. It was inflation, but it wasn't famine stuff. It was just shortages, and you had to pay a relatively high price, but you could still buy food. Um, but with the fifth seal, we saw that among those who were killed were faithful followers of Christ. So it wasn't just God's enemies, but faithful followers, and they were the soul, they were, they were their souls that were in the vision, the people who had died, crying out 
to God for vengeance. They wanted to see the ones who killed them for following Christ put down. Of course, because they were wreaking havoc and torment upon the saints, their brothers and sisters on the earth. And they wanted to see it stop. They wanted to see the evil put down. So there they were, crying out to God. And we said it wasn't some kind of a nasty, mean spirit thing. They were, they were in heaven. They were already perfected. And they're praying, put down this evil, Lord. When are you going to avenge those who shed our blood? With, with, or, or avenge our, us whose blood was shed? With the sixth seal, we saw that the troubles also fell upon those who were persecuting them, especially upon the Jews who had rejected Christ. So that they were in, in desperation. They were wanting the mountains to fall and they were wanting to hide under the, the hills and things like that. Um, then then uh, they, they, they were filled with terror because they saw their kingdom teetering on destruction. We talked about how the disturbances that were shown in the symbols of, in the cosmos, that those are showing disruptions in leadership. You know, the sun and the moon and... And, and that kind of thing. Some of these, they, they may be uh, literal in certain ways too, when there are uh, wars and there's earthquakes and things like that, that there's smoke goes up and makes, this, makes the moon red or you know, those kind of things. But there are all kinds of things going on. But the seventh seal, it was delayed. Remember that? We've been looking at the seventh seal. What was going on with it? Well, this was shown in the vision by the angels being commanded to hold back the four winds of judgment. And I suggested that earth and land could be translated either way, that it's probably better there to translate it land, that it's talking about the land of Israel. And so the four corners of that land, the angels are there, these angels holding back winds of judgment. And why was this done? It was done, we were told, until... 144,000 of the Jews from tribes of Israel could be sealed so as not to be judged, so as marked out to be spared from this devastating judgment that was coming upon Jerusalem. The seventh seal would initiate such dreadful judgment that virtually all the Jews at Jerusalem who would be trapped inside the walls of the city during the Roman siege. Okay, they had surrounded the city, and it was under siege. They wouldn't let anybody in or anybody out, starving them out, and that sort of thing. They were miserable inside. There, there were factions, we're told in history, that these things that happened uh, in pre-70 AD. And you remember what I told you before, what actually happened at Jerusalem at that time? It was devastating. Josephus tells us 1.1 million of the Jews that were in Jerusalem were killed in 70 AD. They were slaughtered. And then there were, uh, what was it, 93,000 that uh, were taken into slavery. And that's pretty much the whole city. Because, though, of the gracious action of God taking these ones that were Jewish Christians, Jews who had believed that were in the city, sealing them, and Jesus had told them to run when they saw the city surrounded, and they couldn't because it was surrounded by the, the, in the siege. But then the siege pulled back for a time, and they all fled to the mountains, we're told, and went to Pella, like Jesus told them to go to the mountains. And uh, they were spared. And you remember what we saw last time? Because of God's gracious action in sealing them, 
that the whole church was filled with praise. Heaven was filled with praise. Coming up from the earth as the saints rejoiced to see these brothers of theirs at Jerusalem who had been spared. These 144,000 had been sealed. And so now this is the time has come for the seventh seal to be opened. It was held off until they could get to safety. God had provided for their, um, their protection. And now it is time to open that seal. And this is a dramatic picture. Heaven is hushed at the prospect of having this seal open. It's, they're in awe for half an hour in the realization that the terrible vengeance of God is about to be unleashed upon the holy city, Jerusalem, and some of the surrounding area. They had rejected Jesus Christ as Messiah. He had warned them that in their generation, they would see him coming in the clouds, meaning coming in judgment. Whenever you see a vision of God coming in the clouds like that, he's coming uh, to, to deal with his enemies. Heaven is hushed in anticipation that the wrath that had been held back was now to be unleashed, was to erupt. They see the seven angels come forth with seven trumpets. Verse 2, John sees this. He says, And I saw the seven angels who stand before God. Specific angels that stand before God. The seven angels. And to them were given seven trumpets. What are those trumpets? It's clear if you read on what happens with the trumpets. Those trumpets are war horns that sounded in heaven to herald seven stages, to announce seven stages of God's judgment. With the seventh trumpet, like the seventh seal, bringing a third series of seven more judgments that are represented in bowls. So there's seven trumpets that flow out of the seventh seal, and then out of the seventh trumpet, we're going to see later there's going to be seven bowls. Judgment, 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 and the judgment is increasingly more, more serious, more devastating and complete. So the seven angels, these seven angels are called the seven, probably to indicate that they are the seven archangels that are named in Jewish literature. Okay, we see them in some of the apocryphal books that were written between the um, Old and New Testament. Among these seven, they're, they're named in one of the, in, in, uh, there's Tobit 12, 15, and one, first Enoch 20, verse 1. And Michael and Gabriel, for example, are named, ones you've probably heard of. They're, they're two of the ones of the seven that are named as part of the seven. So, so here they are, these archangels, uh, ready to go forth with the, to sound the trumpet to, to send forth to unleash God's wrath and judgment. How striking this silence must have been to John. It must have been a loud silence, if you know what I mean by that. It was a captivating silence. It was something that was, it, it filled the whole, the, the whole atmosphere. You know, kind of a, a this has been a place where there, there had been all this rejoicing and celebrating about sparing of the 144,000. And then it went quiet because he's getting, ready to, he's getting ready to open the seventh seal. He's opening the seventh seal. 
something is about to happen. Now there's a new development. Another angel appears. Verse 3 and 4. Then another angel having a golden censer, okay, something that they would burn incense in or carry it in, uh, came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints ascended before God from the angel's hand. This angel is clearly a priest. He comes with a golden censer that was used by the priest to burn incense. We read about that in Exodus. No one but priests were to do this. Remember what happened when King Hezekiah tried to burn incense in the temple? God struck the priest said, you, you're not to do this. You're not a priest. You're not consecrated to do this by God. And he, he became a leper immediately. He went hastening out of the temple and he, he stayed a leper for the rest of his life. You can see that this priest then stands at the altar in heaven, the golden altar, before God's throne and presents to God the prayers of the saints with much incense. This is something that priests at the earthly temple did every day. We read that. Every day they were to bring the incense that God had appointed and offer it up to God. The incense sweetened the prayers of God's people to make them acceptable before Him. It represented the intercession of Jesus Christ. So, uh, for uh, you know, like us, their prayers were, were mixed with all kinds of things that were not so good. And then Christ's intercession made them acceptable to God. The angel is clearly the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I find it remarkable that not all interpreters see this. I read some of them that, that don't see it being Christ or don't know whether it's Christ. And I don't know how they can miss that it's Christ. I don't usually speak that way about when there's division like that. But in this case, I, I don't see how this could possibly be anyone but Christ. Um, many, many think it is. But some of them just think it's some random angel that's doing this. Uh, but that can't, that can't be. First of all, it's quite well known that Christ is often called an angel. That shouldn't be any problem. Um, in the Old Testament, the one called the angel of the Lord is often worshipped. But all the others who are angels forbid anyone to worship them. So, you know, he's the angel of the Lord. He's, he's God. He's the son of God. We saw today in our reading when the angel came to, or, or the three men came to Abraham, and they're talking, and Abraham calls him my Lord, Adonai. He doesn't use the name Jehovah. He, he doesn't know necessarily. And then later on, it says of that one, one of the angels that the Lord, Yahweh, said to him, one of these men was called the Lord. So it's clearly that, you know, this was Christ. Uh, the term angel means messenger, and in Revelation, it's sometimes used to refer to Christ, sometimes used to refer to ministers, and sometimes used in the most common way to refer to ministering spirits that are sent from heaven from, by God, the angels, the holy angels that we talk about. This must be Christ. Second, this must be Christ because angels who are ministering spirits are not priests, nor are they authorized 
to do the work of priests. Christ is authorized to serve as a priest. The scripture teaches plainly that even he had to be called to this, that no one takes it to themselves. It teaches plainly that a priest must be a man because he is representing men. You can't have an angel representing men. Jesus didn't become an angel, it says, because he came to represent us. So this is why Christ had to become a man. Third, this angel must be Christ because he is the only priest of all the priests that ministers in the heavenly sanctuary. He is different than all the other priests. He's a priest after the order of Melchizedek, not Aaron. He is set forth as absolutely unique. The other priests being appointed to serve in an earthly tabernacle that was made with man's hands, and Christ alone being the one that goes right up to the throne of God, the altar of God in heaven, to offer and present his sacrifice and burn incense and these things to intercede for us. There is no one else but Christ that this can be. But some have objected that this could not be Christ because it says that he was given much incense that he should offer it. But this should not be an issue because, first, this is a vision of Christ's intercession. A vision of his intercession. He doesn't really put our prayers in a box or something and, and carry it up to God and, and burn incense when he intercedes. His, his intercession is not in, in, incense. His intercession is him. Like, like presenting to the Father. It's shown, it's symbolized by incense in the Old Testament. And so this is used now to show what he's doing in heaven. You can't see it. And so it's, it's made visual to us by the burning of incense. And uh, it's, used, it's using that energy. Furthermore, that he was given the incense, even if it were literal, would simply mean that it was appointed to him to burn this incense. That he was, it was given to him to do this as the priest. It was appointed. So I am quite convinced that this angel is Christ, our great high priest. I honestly can't see it any other way. Now before we move on, I want to point out why it is necessary for him to offer incense with our prayers. And even if I'm missing something and this isn't Christ, it's still this picture is one that is true according to the scripture. Um, that, that it is necessary for Christ to offer incense with our prayers, to, to intercede for us. Mention again, not literal, but it shows that we need Christ to intercede when we pray. It's necessary, I mentioned this before, because our prayers are not perfectly holy. Therefore, they are not acceptable to God as they are coming from us. They are defiled by many things. You know that. You ever try to pray? You know, your prayers, oh, they're just perfectly holy. Yeah, right. Tell me another one. They're not, they're not as fervent as they should be. They're, not as, they're tainted with other motives, improper motives. They're sometimes mixed with unacceptable attitudes and desires. They're mixed with unbelief. Sometimes you don't even know what to pray. We who pray them still have sin and corruption that remains in us. We're not pure and holy. I'm sure you get the idea by now. You, you, know, you know this. The prayers are not... But you see, this is really encouraging because Christ's work of intercession is done alongside of our prayers 
so that they are presented before the throne of God and they're accepted. This should encourage you to pray. Your prayers are welcomed. Your prayers are received before a holy God who receives nothing but what is perfect and holy. What a great encouragement this is to us. We pray. Our prayers are heard. You don't have to be good at it. You don't have to say, oh, I'm really good at praying. I know how to, I know all about, I know how to, no. Come in your weakness. Come with prayers as they are. It's mumbling along, struggling, sputtering, trying to, don't even know what to say. Cry out to God. He's pleased with your prayers. He, 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 Christ refines our prayers. Our prayers get through when we bring them in the name of Christ. That's why Jesus said, pray in my name. You need my atonement when you pray. You need my intercession when you pray. And then your prayers are welcomed. That's how you can be confident and encouraged. Not because your prayers are so great, but because your mediator is active and busy interceding for you and he knows how to do it. He knows how to do it well. Don't hesitate to pray, brothers and sisters, thinking that I'm too weak and I, I, I'm really not able to do this. You're able to do this. If you can say, help me, you can, you can pray. So, Keep that in mind. Yeah, of course we want to improve our prayers, but God, God improves them. So since our prayers are offered by Christ with his incense, they're frightfully potent. And that's the third thing I want to look at. Look at what he does after offering up our prayers with his intercession to God's throne. Verse 5 and 6. Then the angel took the censer, so the same angel that was offering Christ, filled it with fire from the altar, and threw it to the earth. There were noises, thunderings, lightnings, and an earthquake. God's vengeance is released upon His and our enemies. The fire of His indignation that consumes the sacrifices on the altar. Okay, that's what the fire does. It consumes the sacrifice that is representing being burned and judged by the wrath of Almighty God. The same coals are taken and put in the censer now and thrown to the earth to those who are not under that atoning sacrifice. They have to bear the judgment that the sacrifice bore in behalf of God's people. That's the picture that we have here. So uh, it's, it's poured out. Something like what people saw at Mount Sinai is presented here. The law apart from the atonement. You remember when God first gave His people the law at Mount Sinai and they were terrified. They saw the thunderings and the lightnings and the shaking of the earth. They were terrified at the display. But what happened alongside of that? They cried out for mediation and then God gave them the tabernacle and the whole service where atonement was provided so that all this wrath and indignation doesn't fall on you but it falls on the victim who is sacrificed. And now you can come to God as His people who is a holy God who judges sin and you will not be judged. But if you're naked without atonement, you're not covered by the atonement, then you have to bear the wrath and judgment of God. That's what happens to those who repent, who do not repent. The naked justice of God falls upon them. That is what happened to these Jews and others down on the earth who did not receive their Messiah. The, the seventh angel, the, the, the seven angels prepared to sound their trumpet shows that God's judgments with this 
sending forth these coals and whatever, God's judgments are getting ready to break forth. It's stated already, the horns, horns are used for different things. Sometimes they're used to summon God's people together. But here they're war horns, very clearly, that herald the sending forth of God's wrath to destroy his enemies. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. What's the result? Utter destruction. Now I believe that in this vision, so I've been studying this, I believe that John is seeing what was going to happen to the Jews in 78 or AD 70. They had rejected their own Messiah that God had graciously sent into the world to save them. It's a crime of infinite proportions. Makes them doubly guilty compared to others because not only did they reject God as their maker, as we've all done, but they also rejected him as their gracious redeemer, as those who had been his people and had the promises. We're told that wrath came upon them to the uttermost. Jesus pronounced woe upon them. Remember when he was at, after when, when he saw the women and, and they were weeping and everything, and he said, you know, weep for yourselves when you see what's going to happen in your generation. It's going to be devastation. He told them that they would see him coming with the clouds in divine vengeance to crush them. They thought they were doing something, getting, getting rid of him. Now, if you agree with those who believe that John wrote this later in time, it's okay. Um, I say I, I was struggling with it. I come to, that, come to look at it that way. But if you see it the other way, they wrote this uh, later on after Jeru- that John wrote after Jerusalem was destroyed. That's fine. It's certainly still an inside look at what happens in heaven. The saints pray. Judgment is poured out on God's enemies. It doesn't matter when it happened. It's the same picture. The saints, the believing Jews and their Gentile brothers, prayed and God poured out His wrath and judgment on Israel. I believe it was on those who said, crucify, crucify, when Pilate said, I can find no fault in him. What evil has he done? It also, however, applies to other times in history when the Lord has judged adversaries. His people cry out. They're persecuted. They die. Many of them die. And the day comes when the Lord pours out his wrath on their enemies. Certainly, this is what he has told us will happen also at the end of the world. When Jesus returns at the end of the age with all his holy angels, his people pray and judgment will fall at the last day. Christ mingles his incense with their prayers, and then he crushes their adversaries in answer to their prayers. The prayers of the saints mingled with Christ's incense are terrifyingly potent. There is no force more destructive than the wrath that is released by the prayers of the saints. That's incredible to think about. Our little prayers as God's people mingled with Christ's incense are more potent force of destruction than anything else. Notice how in verse 3, it says that those prayers are the prayers of all the saints, not just some of them. There is no true saint that does not pray this prayer. A saint is simply 
the word saint is simply a word that refers to a professing believer. Okay? And a true saint is one that truly believes. When Paul writes to the saints at Ephesus, for example, it's the professing believers. Some of them were not really genuinely saved. But, so if you say a true saint, we mean those that are truly saved. If we just say saints, it's those that are marked out as God's saints at this present time on earth. So if you're a true believer, your prayers joined with Christ's intercession will bring about the destruction of all who reject Christ, including all people that do and all angels that do. Satan and all of his. The prayers of God's saints mingled with the incense of Christ brings the overthrow of Satan and all of those who serve him. This is power beyond measure that we're talking about. But you will say, well, how can it be true that all saints pray this prayer? It's because if you're a real Christian, you came to Christ because of your sin. You came because you wanted to be delivered from your sin. You want Him to save you from your own sin. Not only from its penalty, but you want sin to be taken away from you so that you sin no more. You want to be cleansed so that you have a pure and holy heart. A true believer does not want to go on sinning. He does not want evil to go on. He wants evil out, eradicated. Otherwise, you're not a Christian if, the, if you don't want that. If you say, oh, I like to have a little bit of evil, then you're not really a Christian. You pray that evil as a Christian will be put down, completely put down. We want heaven where there's no more sin, no more hostility, no more disrespecting of God, no more dishonoring of Him, no more even coming short of all that we should be. You pray that all evil will be put down. You don't want rebellion against God and His Son to continue. You have had enough of evil. As I was thinking about this this week and praying, as thinking on these thoughts, I was, I was saying to the Lord, there's enough evil. We've had enough of evil. Like It's time for it to go. You, you want Christ to bring in His kingdom. Did He not teach us to pray that way? Did He not teach us to pray that evil would be put down? Sometimes Christians have a hard time thinking about this kind of thing. But that's exactly what he told us to pray. Think about the Lord's Prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Lord, you have not been honored. Your name be vindicated, that your name is exalted because people are pulling your name down all the time. They're trashing you. They're talking blasphemy against you. That your name that is dishonored would be dishonored no longer by everyone that everyone would respect His name, that everyone would honor His name. That's what He told us to pray. Your kingdom come. You want His kingdom of righteousness to be fully established, not just a little bit. You want His kingdom of righteousness to be completely established, which means that Satan is cast out along with all who continue in opposition to His kingdom. There are no more opposers to the kingdom. They're cast into the pit, into the lake of fire. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You want disobedience, sin, eradicated. His will done, here is there. Give us this day 
our daily bread. God's rich provision because the curse is no more. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors to live in a place where there is no sin that has not been dealt with. No sin that has not been confessed and atoned for. All is covered. All is past. There's no more bitterness. There's no more in any of the people there. They've, they, they are forgiven as they have been forgiven. Lead us not into temptation. A kingdom where we're not even tempted anymore because there's nothing there going against God to draw us away from Him anymore. That's what we pray for. That's what we desire as God's people. But deliver us from evil. A place where there is no evil, where all evil is taken out of me and out of all of my brothers and sisters, and it's non-existent. And here's the thing. Here's the thing. God will fully answer those prayers that His people have been praying for 2,000 years ago. 2,000 years. The last two, since, since He taught us to pray this. They prayed it before that too. You see the similar prayers in the Old Testament. But when Jesus put it together in the form of the Lord's Prayer, He will come with fiery indignation in answer to those prayers. God has actually arranged His decree so that our prayers are essential to move the work of His kingdom along. He does not wish for His kingdom to advance and move forward without us recognizing that He must, with, 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 that he must be the one that does it. He's the one that has to do it. And without us wanting Him to do it. So in other words, our prayers are part of the whole plan. He's not going to do it without our prayers. We have to want it done, and we have to recognize that He's the one to do it. Think about it. He doesn't even save sinners apart from their prayer to be saved. Right? We cry out to God, desiring to be saved and knowing that only He can save us or we're not saved. That's what, I don't mean you have to say a certain formula prayer. It may be a heart groaning of crying out to Him, but we cry out to God. We want to be delivered from our sin. We must want to be saved and we must call upon Him and we must do it through Jesus with faith. It's actually terrifying to see how potent our prayers really are. It's not that we could pray something that would be contrary to God's will and that that would happen, that we could have things done that are not right to be done. But it is very sobering to realize that what our prayers for the establish to realize what our prayers for the establishment of God's kingdom will bring forth. It's not something gentle. It's something very heavy. And this, I think, that we see here today in our text is talking about what happened 70 AD. But it's also what has happened all through history when God's people have prayed and God has visited their enemies with judgment. And it's what will happen at the last day when Christ takes all of our prayers, adds his incense to it, and brings it before the Father and the trumpets sound and vengeance breaks loose and Christ comes in all of His glory with all the holy angels with Him and we go to be with Him forever in His kingdom. And Satan and all of His are cast into the lake of fire 
forever and ever. Please stand and let's pray. Heavenly Father, it is a humbling thing to pray and realize what prayer does in the hands of our God. We sometimes think that we pray and nothing happens. And certainly it is that way when we're praying for something to happen next week that doesn't happen next week. But it's not at all what happens in the grand scheme of your plan and decree and purpose. We see that these, these martyrs, you know, that were in heaven, that they, were, they had prayed and cried out to you, take vengeance on our adversaries. They said, how long? How long? And then when it happens, it's overwhelming to think. This is what you ask. And Father, we recognize that, that your judgment is, is very mighty and that it is unleashed because of the prayers of the saints and that our simple prayer that you would put evil down brings about these things. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to have a holy reverence and an awe before you. We're reminded again how this began with the awe, the silence in heaven. Heaven was completely silent as they considered what, what was about to happen, as they saw that something was about to happen, that your holy city was about to be visited. We pray, Lord, then, that you would humble us before your mighty throne. And we pray, Lord, that we would be sure that we are under the protection of the atoning sacrifice at the altar, the sacrifice that was burned on the altar, rather than that the coals and fire from the altar would destroy us, that we would become the sacrifice. Truly, that's the picture that we have in Revelation, that the enemies of God become the sacrifice that is burned up. Not a sacrifice of atonement, but they become a burning of your wrath upon them for their sins. A release of that wrath. We pray, Lord, then, that you would help us, O oh Lord, as we come before you worshiping you and thanking you, even that you did step into our place to bear all that wrath and that curse so that we could have a protection, so that we could be clothed with your righteousness, so that we could be clothed and covered with your atonement, the blood that was shed, so that we could be washed and purified and stand before you. O oh Lord, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, the whole earth is filled with your glory, and the whole earth shall be filled with your glory in the day of your visitation. Jesus warned the people in his day that they did not know of their visitation when they rejected him. And he told them that they would see him coming in the clouds of judgment. We've been told that this will happen also at the end of this age. And we praise you, O Lord, for you are a glorious and mighty God. And it is before you, Lord, that we have come. And we pray humbly, putting our whole future into your holy hands. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Because Christ made atonement, we have a covering. We don't have the coals fall upon us.
but on our adversaries, the adversaries of Christ. Receive then the blessing of the Lord your God, you who are trusting in him. This is your blessing. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob defend you. May he send you help from his sanctuary and strengthen you out of Zion. May he grant you according to your heart's desire. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. Amen.